Words, they get golly hard when they jumble. Jumping over hurdles, slowing birds like a turtle. Merkin fool, like Squirtle and Kate Gould. Cold blood is with this rhyme scheme, I'm a boss. This is That Got Me Thinking, I'm Ellie Newman. This week, I've been thinking about the limiting narratives we create about ourselves and others in the attempt to make sense of a painful experience, to control the situation and protect ourselves from future hurt. I've been thinking about what shuts me down or pulls me up and out of my center into springing reaction mode and what I can do to stay grounded in my power center and steer towards openness and expansion instead. I've been thinking about therapy, about our attempts to fix and solve and change, and I've been thinking about Dora the Explorer and her backpack that gave her the confidence to set out on all her crazy adventures, knowing she had what she needed to navigate them. She just had to look inside. What if we trusted ourselves enough to be our own authority, to look inside to determine where we are and what direction to head when we felt lost or faced obstacles on our path? What if when we came across and up against our rising edges in life, we could stay open instead of shutting down? My guest today is Diana Hill, PhD. She is a co-host of the podcast Psychologists Off the Clock and the co-author with Debbie Sorensen, PhD, of Act Daily Journal, Get Unstuck and Live Fully with Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. Welcome, Diana, and thank you so much for joining us today on That Got Me Thinking. Thank you for having me here. It's fantastic. And I loved your introduction about what got you thinking because it's such a good match for what gets me thinking too in terms of ACT. Yeah, <laughs> I'm going to fess up that it wasn't till this morning, it dawned on me that ACT Daily Journal was also like ACT Daily, which I'd realized was a big core piece of the journal. The ACT Daily Journal invites us to bring a hallmark of well-being, psychological flexibility to each and every moment of our existence, to be present, living fully in the here and now, disengage from the stories our minds feed us, uh, have a multiverse perspective, be courageous, open to what we feel and sense, and step forward with compassion and commitment aligned with our values. And with that, we will live a powerful and fulfilling life. Um, I don't know what else anyone could want. Uh, I guess my first question is, what inspired you and Debbie to write this book at this time? Yeah, well, well, Debbie and I are friends who started a podcast together four years ago, psychologists who have thought a lot about these principles that we learn from psychology. We both have academic degrees, but then chose a more clinical path of working with folks and and then how we apply them to our own lives. And this journal is about taking these principles from psychology that are incredibly helpful for folks and have been demonstrated effective through a whole lot of research uh, and really applying it in the day-to-day -day of parenting, the day-to-day -day of going to work. And it just sort of happened that we ended up being moms during a pandemic, writing about psychological flexibility together, which we didn't expect, but we really had to take what we were teaching and, and apply it while we were writing. And I'd love to share a little bit about what specifically psychological flexibility is, because that's really the premise of acceptance and commitment therapy and, and why we're uh, using this term ACT. Uh, it's sort of a whole series of skills that work together to build uh, a meaningful life. That'd be great. So psychological flexibility and, and ACT is sort of this modern term. It, it, ACT is built on cognitive behavioral therapy, but older approaches to psychology were a lot about changing the way you think. And ACT takes a different approach. Like you mentioned, it's it's less about 
changing who you are or changing the way you think, but rather relating to yourself differently, relating to your thoughts differently. And really this idea that when we can open ourselves to the present moment and feel fully and actually see that the things that we care most about are also linked to the things that are most painful to us, that we can't cut out what's painful because if we cut out what's painful, we cut out what we care about. And psychological flexibility is your capacity to open up and be present while also pursuing what matters most to you. And it's a behavioral approach in that it uses a lot of behavioral science that's been developed over the years, but also uh, very much incorporates ideas and practices from Eastern principles like acceptance, um, like what's called cognitive diffusion, which is looking at your thoughts, as well as taking perspective on your own self stories. I love that you say that this isn't a fix and go solution based approach. Um, and that it's a guide of life tools to deal with internal and external world as we go along. And I think that's so important because often when we go to therapy, we go to fix a problem, fix ourselves, change something. And we forget that like our physical health, that this is something that we are going to be doing every day. That it's not like we go and think, oh, running is really good for us now. I know that I'll run once and then I'll be done. Um, and that this is sort of the same approach. Um, the journal is broken down into eight weeks. Week one, it starts with preparing the ground. And you talk about compassion being an active, not a passive act. How is that? Well, Paul Gilbert, we drew a lot from his work, and he's the founder of the Compassionate Mind Foundation. And he describes and defines compassion as having two parts. The first part is our willingness to turn towards pain, whether it's in ourselves or in another. And then the second part is doing something about it, you know, doing something to work towards the alleviation of pain. And a lot of times when people think about compassion, they think it is this more passive experience. But Compassion would be something like if you were experiencing um, shame, you would first open up and make contact with that shame, but then you'd also maybe turn towards it with a compassionate mind, with an encouraging voice, with a reminder that you are connected to a greater whole, that everyone makes mistakes. Uh, That's sort of Kristen Neff's definition of self-compassion, which includes mindfulness, common humanity, as well as kindness. And what I really like about uh, the, the approach that Paul Gilbert is that compassion flows three ways and that when we can give compassion to others and we can receive compassion from others and then we can give compassion to ourselves, it actually really helps us navigate life's challenges much more effectively. Why are we often meanest to ourselves when we're most vulnerable and struggling or stepping outside of our comfort zone? Well, there's a lot of reasons why. I mean, one is just our tricky brains are designed that way, right? So our, our brains are actually fixers and they're designed to avoid pain and seek out pleasure. And when we're struggling, oftentimes our mind goes to wanting to fix, we turn ourselves into the self-improvement project, right? We need to fix ourselves in some way. Some of us have experienced childhoods where we were spoken to in a harsh or critical way. And some of the self stories that we carry later in life are ones that developed really, really early on. They're imprinted in our mental models and they become sort of shorthand ways of experiencing the world. So sometimes it can come from your early childhood experiences. It also comes from very much our culture. Uh, in the West, there's very much a self-improvement, uh, self-punishment 
type of approach. So there's a lot of different reasons why. And it's not your fault. But as it is, I think, liberating to start to notice your mind doing that and then learning that you don't always have to listen to your mind, that there's another way of interacting with yourself that is kinder, that is encouraging, that is compassionate, that will help you get through struggles, but also help you be more compassionate and empathic with others as well. I think it's so important to understand, and you guys explain this throughout the journal, the whys that in that case, like our brain isn't being mean to us and trying to make life hard, that for our physical survival, it's important to avoid pain and to control dangerous situations. And and so it's trying to do the right thing, right? Those blocks and um, you talk about the inner critic and the, the inner demons, they're trying to help. Your recommendation is to instead of running from them or fighting them off or pushing them away, to converse with them, to create a space where they can coexist. What what does that look like and how does that serve us? You know, that specific exercise in the book actually came from an ancient Tibetan practice, which is feeding your inner demons. And when when the difficult parts of us show up, we often turn away from or try and fix or control, right? That's our attempt to avoid pain. But when turning away from pain also turns you away from your values, you engage in what's called experiential avoidance. So when we can actually turn towards the parts of us that are painful, even if it's painful thoughts or it's our own inner critic, or for a long time I worked with eating disorders, so the eating disorder voice, and you start to dig under it and start to say like, why are you here? What are you here for? What do you need from me? We often can find that there's um, oftentimes a core longing that's underneath it. So if you look at maybe the critic that's, that's commenting about like how embarrassing you are in social situations, social anxiety is one of the ones where our mind has a whole lot to say about us and we feel like there's a spotlight on us and everything is being, you know, judged and criticized by our mind. And when we turn towards that critic and we actually realize, wait, I think that critic might be here because it really wants me to feel like I belong. That the core underneath, you know, the real true feeling under there is I long to belong. Then we can actually meet the true need, which is you do belong. You know, a compassionate voice would say, of course you belong. You've always belonged. And so there's information that gets lost when we practice experiential avoidance a lot can get lost. And so what is the difference in that moment when the critic arises or the shame arises or the fear arises in our action toward it, like our internal action toward it, that shifts it from being um, an enemy or a frenemy (laughs) to actually being a friend? Mm. Well, it's how you're relating to it, right? So we can think about physical pain and emotional pain in our brain is actually quite similar. So we see similar areas of the brain that are activated, like the anterior insula or the anterior cingulate cortex are both activated in the brain when you're feeling physical pain or when you're feeling emotional pain. So what's our instinct when we feel physical pain? Like you stub your toe, right? It's to like make it make it go away really quickly. And, and what's interesting is actually chronic pain is a result of 
trying to fix and get rid of physical pain that, that isn't going away, right? So and actually act as one of the primary treatments for, for chronic pain. But when we can turn towards both the physical and the emotional pain with a stance of opening up, willingness, allowing, making space, noticing, okay, where's the sensations in my body? What are the thoughts that are associated with this? It, it changes the way we experience pain. And both physical and, and emotional, I would say, and, and, and the research maps onto that. It's more painful if you get a shot, if you clench your arm up. And I would say it's more painful in a fight with your partner if you're shutting down, right, from feeling. So I practice yoga and I have a lot of background and training in yogic principles of embodiment. And I really do believe that willingness and acceptance is, is an embodied state of loosening your grip a little bit and the tug of war of what's uncomfortable for you. And when you expand that, when you move into the discomfort and make room for the discomfort, you also have the opportunity to live more fully. And this is what you practice in week two, the being present in our lives and present with those feelings and the discomfort and those dynamic tensions through embodiment. Uh, and that in each of these stages, it's going to be something that you are going to be practicing every time the opportunity arises. Um, the practice here is to, instead of avoiding the monsters or running from them, is to feed them. Uh, what does that look like? The practice of being present is an interesting one because it's something that we can do throughout our day. And there's going to be monsters that show up throughout your day, whether those monsters are in your head or they're uncomfortable sensations. And if, if, if we don't turn towards them, we end up running away from them. And you sort of, it's like the whole thing around taking a lot of left turns, you're going to end up in circles, right? And we even use this term of experiential avoidance, right? The, the roundabout that we can get caught in. So the first step of being with the monsters in your head or the monsters in your body or the, you know, difficult emotions that we experience is to land in the here and now and be present. You know, there's a um, exercise that I teach of one eye out and one eye in that I learned a long time ago from Anita Johnson, who wrote the book, Eating in the Light of the Moon. And in that exercise, you start with two eyes in, like what's happening in my body? What's happening in my mind? What am I feeling right now? And then you turn two eyes out. What's around me? What do I see? What do I sense with my five senses? Who's here? How am I can I, you know, what are they feeling? Or what can I observe about them? I don't know what they're feeling, but what do I observe about them? And then one eye in and one eye out in our lives is keeping one eye connected to what's going on inside and one eye connected to what's going on outside. And if we're doing that, say we're in a difficult conversation with a with a partner and, and the monsters are like you know, strong feelings or critical thoughts about ourselves or the other person, we can pause and just get present with noticing our partner there, noticing ourselves, what's happening in my body. And it can really change and, and help us get out of the the patterns and the trapped, you know, sort of rigid thinking that we can all get caught in when when we're in our threat system. So I would say that's feeding, I guess that's feeding the demon in some way. Just being present with it, because I'm thinking about, you know, in that second, in that situation, if, you know, inside you're screaming about um, close down, close down, put the walls up or run or, or attack um, or blame that you don't have to try to change any of that just to be noticing it 
and then be with it, right? Let it, let it be there um, and not try to, to switch it off or, or turn away from it, but not let it control your actions. Yes. If you look at a lot of the psychological, what have been categorized as disorders out there, and there's actually, I think, a real shift in psychology away from disorders and diagnoses towards these are just human processes that can get us in stuck loops, right? If you look at a lot of them, a lot of them are due to, or these stuck loops are due to unwillingness to experience discomfort and attempts to get rid of it. So whether that discomfort is an obsessive thought that shows into your comes up in your head at inappropriate times, and all of a sudden you got to wash your hands and you got to, you know, do all sorts of things to get rid of the obsessive thought, or maybe the discomfort is strong feelings of, 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 of depression that, you know, you, tr you turn away from or loneliness that you turn away from by using substances or uh, getting back in bed, right? Are our attempts to get rid of and uh, the discomfort of living leads to our greatest suffering. And these are, you know, this is old teachings. This isn't new to ACT. But in ACT or this sort of modern psychology, the path out is around these core processes of psychological flexibility that give you a little bit more wiggle room in those moments so that you don't turn towards your addiction, but instead you have another tool or another set of tools that can free you up so that you can keep doing what you care about. And that's ultimately, you know, whether it's chronic pain or depression that that's feels like it's keeping you stuck, it's not getting rid of the pain or getting rid of the feelings of depression, but rather about how do you take action towards what you care about, even in the face of difficulty. And I think the pandemic is a perfect example of that, right? Yeah, I'm thinking about in parenting as well, that that's so often the key when our kids are upset to just be there holding space for them, listening, um, you know, loving them, maybe hugging them. And then we can do that for our demons inside of us as well. In, instead of jumping to the trying to fix or solve or push away or, or blame or or judgment. You talk about quite a bit in the book about judgment getting in our way, being judgmental, which I think to some people might be a surprise that being judgmental is somehow in our way. In what ways, when we get into that space, does that block us from other things? Well, our minds are designed, our brains are designed to categorize things. So our doing minds want to label things, can be super helpful if you're going to the grocery store and you see a rotten banana and you say, that's bad. I'm not going to buy that. I'm going to buy this good one over here, right? It's a shorthand. Judgments are a shorthand way of navigating a very complex world and creating mental models that help us make decisions quickly. But what can happen with judgments is that we can get what's called fused with them. And fusion is, is when we believe our thoughts to be true without questioning them. And sometimes those judgments can be about ourselves so that we start making decisions because of judgments about ourselves. And, and the, the judgments may be uh, everything from, you know, for a long time, I, I, don't, I don't like things that I feel like I'm going really fast in or I feel like a sense of physical loss of control. So I grew up here in Santa Barbara and never surfed once. <laughs> I, I did graduate school in Colorado and never skied, right? I don't like going fast. And for a long time, it was like, I just don't do those things. I can't do those, right? So I can't. I'm just not... proud of you for that, that you drew a boundary and you weren't influenced by others. I drew a boundary. And when my son was six, 
he really, really, really wanted to learn to surf. It was what he just craved. He, he, it wasn't anything I told him about, but he just longed for it. He loved the ocean. And so at almost 40 years old, I got out there with a giant long board because less chances of falling over the bigger the board. And I got out there not for any reason, but because of my value of caring for my son and wanting to be with him and wanting to model some flexibility, right? Of I'm actually not out here to like prove myself as a surfer or to any kind of external reward, but because of more of an intrinsic caring about something. So a judgment can block us from doing all sorts of things. And yes, there's helpful boundaries to have. And sometimes it's also helpful to have flexible boundaries that can shift in time over time. And they shift based on our values, not based on what someone else says we should or shouldn't do, but based on intrinsic longings within ourselves about what we want in our life. And that can be quite liberating to see that you're more than what your mind tells you you are. And uh, some of these I am's, I am nots that have been along, around for a long time may not be so helpful all the time. In so much therapy, so many different types of therapy, there's such a focus on um, looking at our habitual responses and noticing our, our patterns and, and noticing the narratives that we've created and um, the many of them that are false narratives about ourselves. And those are the I am's and, and those um, terms you were talking about that come up in our head. How important is it in ACT to understand the origination point? Oh, well, I started believing when I was five that, you know, I wasn't, I was odd or I didn't belong or I wasn't enough. Um, do you need to understand the genesis of the narratives or just notice what they are and whether or not they're supporting you? I think it depends. You know, I think for some people being able to know, it helps with compassion to understand where this came from, right? Because if we understand like, oh, I developed this, I was just talking with a client yesterday that was talking about how he shut down when his parents got divorced. And that was very young. And then later on, it led him to shut down in later relationships, right? To shut down emotionally, like go into robot mode. It's helpful to understand why he was doing that. And it was helpful to do some of that history, but knowing the history doesn't necessarily change the behavior. What changes the behavior is also knowing why you wanna do it differently. What is it that you care about? What matters to you? And then taking small, measured, repeated steps towards what's uncomfortable, but also towards your values. And so, being able to open up and allow for discomfort while you're pursuing your values is what may help you get out of stuck patterns. So I would say both and, and uh, that sometimes we, I could, people can make really, you know, incredible changes without understanding why or how something developed for them. And I would also say it can be, um, help cultivate a sense of compassion when you take perspective on your own life. We stand at, you know, sort of one moment in time in this timeline of us. And I would say the timeline of us travels all the way back to before we were born. And we know, you know in terms of epigenetics and the passing on a trauma through our own genes that who we are now is 
very much what our ancestors went through, right? And then the timeline of our life moves forward into, into the future, into the unknown, right? But here we stand in the here and now. This is where we can take action in our life with our hands and our feet guided by our heart as opposed to our head. But zooming out from time to time to take perspective on ourselves and, and observe and have a thread of understanding of our lineage, I think can be helpful. I loved your exercise in work three of breaking some internal rules just to just to practice the flexibility. So if you guys go surfing one day, um, just because you don't, um, and you know that's something. Not I mean because your your son asked you to, but oh, I'm not someone who does that. And so um, connected with that, you talk about doing what we want instead of what you're telling yourself you should. Is it pretty easy, do you think, to recognize when you're operating on a should versus a want? Mm. I think it can feel different in your body, a should versus a want. So I experience shoulds as closing down, you know, as, as a sense of narrowing of experience where I feel wants are more of an opening up and more of a curious stance. And what was interesting about curiosity and curiosity linked to values is that it's one of the things that neuroscience is actually starting to look at. I interviewed Jed Brewer a while back who wrote the book Unwinding Anxiety, and he's also a neuroscientist at Brown that looks at the brains in, in the state of craving. And when we approach our cravings with curiosity, it actually changes the way the brain is responding when we're having a craving. And it, it increases the chance of us not actually acting on that craving, right? So taking a stance of want or openness or curiosity can not only change our brain's responses to an experience, but it also, I think, motivates us in a more intrinsic way. And this distinction between intrinsic and extrinsic motivation, I think, is an important one because for many of us in our school systems and that hopefully are getting with it and changing a little bit, but our, many, of, many of us grew up within a school system and within a parenting model that was based on extrinsic rewards. So you do this, you're a good girl. You do that, you get a good grade. You do this, you get an award. You do that, you don't get, I don't know, dessert. And the nature of extrinsic motivators is that they may motivate behavior short term, but they don't motivate behavior in the long run. And it tends to kind of, when no one's looking, you're not going to engage in the behavior and you kind of lose steam with it. Whereas intrinsic motivators are ones that come from wants, they come from curiosity, they come from openness, they come from your heart. And when you're intrinsically motivated about something, all of a sudden you have a superpower that's not going away and that you can tap into it when you're fatigued or you can tap into it when you're worn down or you can tap into it when you're really challenged. And we think about some of the incredible things that have happened around social justice this summer you know, powerful intrinsic motivation that can produce change and positive change. So that's, it's, um, I think it's one of the core components of why ACT is particularly helpful, not only for it's been demonstrated effective for things like depression, anxiety, chronic pain, but also for things like work performance and parenting and uh, leadership skills. Because when you dig into that, it, it, it helps. I know that um, Ping did some studies on how the 
external motivators can actually kill intrinsic motivation um, that was naturally there. So that if someone's motivated to do something, then once you start paying them for it, they actually become less motivated to do it. Yeah, I mean, I think a good real life example is that is weight loss. Yeah. So for a long time, people have been, you know, told change rather than focusing on changing your diet or why is it that you care about doing that, making this change, moving more, changing your diet, eating, you know, healthier. There's been this focus on a change on a scale, which is very much an extrinsic motivator or how you fit in your clothes. Well, there's going to be some days where that scale doesn't change. So are you going to give up taking care of your body? Or are you going to give up, you know, moving your body because the scale didn't change or your clothes don't fit the way that you want them to fit? And I see that as, you know, it's, it's a real, it's, it's an epidemic in terms of how the U.S. approaches behavior change. And if we want to actually move ourselves in directions that line up or more aligned with how we want to be in the world, it is so much more helpful to, to dig into your values to motivate the behavior and have it be focused on process as opposed to outcome. Johan Hari talks about that in his book about depression and looking at actually at a, a weight clinic as to when they started actually talking to the people about, well, when did you start overeating? You know, how is that serving you? Sort of why is this behavior in your life? And as you said, why do you want to change it? That then people actually, once they lost the weight, it stayed off because it was actually serving them in some you know, kind of twisted sense. Um, but to their mind and their body, it, it was, you know, it was definitely serving them. And you're making me think too about the idea of the authentic self and, and the lack of a sense of self other than the external definition as to, you know, when you're saying you're at school and you're rewarded for different behaviors, you're, you're also being told that you are good or not good as a person or valuable or not valuable or belong or don't belong based on these external um, systems. What do you see as the shift with ACT therapy of gaining a, a clearer and, and uh, sturdier and also one that you can trust sense of self? Hmm. Well, I think this doesn't come from ACT as much as it came from a meditation teacher that I spent some um, time with this recently. And um, her name is Aneta Knopp. And she talks about living at the back of the heart so that the front of the heart is all the emotions and thoughts and um, even the transcendent, you know, even, even the self that changes over time. So as I mentioned, run a timeline, you can look back, you can think about what feels really, really, really important right now and crucial and what is intent you're intensely afraid of. And if you zoom out and look at five years ago, it would be something totally different. And if you zoom forward and look at 35 years from now or 10 years from now, it would be something totally different too. But there's a transcendent version of you and going back to Aneta's description, maybe it's the back of the heart version of you that transcends time. And in ACT, we teach about this capacity to step into that version of you so that you are an observer of the waves on you know the front of the heart or the, the top of the ocean, but you're diving down under to a you that remains whole and unchanged. And it's more of a remembering of what's already there than it is about like 
finding something. You know, it's 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 a it's a tuning in and remembering of who you are, what's important to you that transcends time. It just made me think about the difference between, you know, looking for an answer um, in all these different ways to being willing to have an experience, right? And that's the critical shift is like, there aren't these answers out there. There aren't these solutions. There aren't these fixes. It's this willingness to be with yourself um, trust self and experience it all. Debbie mentions learning to stay in the presence of anger. And I just love that phrasing um, that in all these areas, like we're just learning to stay in the presence of what else, whatever's going on, but we're doing that in this like power center of self. That's beautiful. Exactly. Yeah. The power That's center of self that is, that holds space for the anger that holds space, you know, for, for all that comes into your experience, there's enough space for all of it. And sometimes I'll do that with, with clients when they're really overwhelmed in a session and it feels like, you know, we're kind of shutting down and we're like, this is too intense when they're working with trauma, for example, it's, can we make enough space for that to be there too? And it maybe needs to be a really, really big space, but the, the observer self, there's enough room for all of your experiences. In week four, the main elements are acceptance, courageous, willing, and open. And, and a focused on the idea that we've talked about a bit about resisting and rejecting this inner experience. It only kind of causes it to, to fight back stronger. And, and, you know, it's like, I'm going to knock on the door, then I'm going to pound on the door, then I'm going to kick it in. So um, how can we get more comfortable with um, and be more courageous in our, our willingness to accept and, and to remain open in these tough moments? One of the very first um, skills that I learned in, in ACT is something called creative hopelessness. I love the terms. I just have yeah. to say like all of the act terms, it's like, they're the best. <laughs> yeah. So, so the story, this a metaphor that's told, and we use so many metaphors and stories because it's a great way to use language to get around language, right? Language trips us up, but language yeah. also communicates. And so the story and metaphor around um, creative hopelessness is that if you can imagine that you're a farmer with a, a shovel and the shovel has, has done you well in life, you know, it's like helped you feed your family and have enough money to build your home. And you're walking through your farm one day, just observing the land, and you fall into a massive hole that you didn't know was there. And so you got one tool, which is a shovel, and it served you well in life. And so you start shoveling. <laughs> and you shovel, and you shovel, and you shovel, and you shovel, and you get deeper and deeper into the hole, right? And so creative hopelessness is the moment of waking up and looking down at your hands and seeing, whoa, what I am doing is not working. There's got to be another way. And that other way requires me to have the courage to put down the shovel and maybe try some other things out. Maybe even just to acknowledge, I'm like pause and recognize I'm in a hole, like how deep this hole is. And, and then start to look up and see that there's maybe some other people there that are throwing ropes at you or ladders or, you know, being willing to use your hands and your feet to help get yourself out. But I think that moment of acceptance sometimes is, is that, you know, that farmer in a hole moment that we've all had where we wake up to the unworkability 
of what we're doing in our lives that's often related to non-acceptance. Yeah, that shift us to, to what do you guys have? Other good term I love, sky mind, right? Sky mind. To, yeah. to, to look up and but but before you can do that, you have to have that moment exactly where you are willing to pause and notice this isn't working. I'm going deeper and then put down the shovel, right? And, and there's an element of trust there. Um, you mentioned uh, a big old element of trust to be able to to do that, to put down the shovel, that there's something else that's better. Um, you mentioned earlier experiential avoidance, and I'm just thinking it might be good at this point to just talk about the specific things that people, we all typically do instead of putting down the shovel. Um, I think it was numbing, bracing your body, distracting, giving up, rushing through, overthinking and blaming. And I was like, oh yeah, check, 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 check. And some of those I hadn't, I mean, some of them I was like, oh yeah, of course that's experiential avoidance. There were some of them I was like, oh yeah, that is too. Um, Are these things like we just learned uh, to do in those moments? And so like the shovel, we're going to just keep using them? Sure. Well, experiential avoidance is is based on the psychological term, which is um, about negative reinforcement, right? So negative reinforcement is we'll keep doing things that make pain go away. And it's it's at the foundation of addiction. So it makes real sense when I say, oh, yeah, experiential avoidance, every time, you know, you're stressed in the evening, you, you know, drink a few beers, right, or a six pack of beer, right, that's a way that you get rid of the discomfort of stress, like that's experientially avoiding stress. But the more subtle ones that sounds like you noticed, Ali, were things like rushing through something, or staying really busy, or overworking, because what's present maybe in the moment is, is just super uncomfortable, or maybe it's just the boredom of daily living, right? The, 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 the discomfort of daily living. And so we all have our go-tos, everyone's gonna have their favorites, and they're reinforced over time because they give you short-term relief. And our brains are designed to prioritize short-term relief evolutionarily over long-term benefits, right? So in the moment, it's more comfortable when, you know, I'm kind of like my husband's telling me about his day and I'm not super engaged to like pick up my phone. Experiential avoidance of just a little bit of boredom, right? But in the long-term, that will erode my marriage, right? And if I really were aligned with how I wanna be in my relationship with my partner, it would be, to notice that urge to pick up my phone and engage in my value of being present with my partner and listening to him, right? So we have subtle experiential avoidances and then we have big ones like, oh, I am, you know, cutting this person out of my life that also I really love, you know? So there's there's subtle and big ways that we experientially avoid and in ACT, it's this combination of acceptance and change, right? So it's being able to notice when we're doing that, accept and move towards that which is avoided, but also change our behavior in a way that lines up with the kind of coworker we want to be or the kind of friend we want to be or the kind of, um, you know, human, human on this planet we want to be. You say the more that you practice opening up, the more freedom you will experience. Um, why freedom? Freedom is, is the power of choice. So here's an, here's an example. I find um, doing laundry a little bit of drudgery. <laughs> it's not fun, 
It's, you know, it's like a task that always seems to be overflowing. And if I approach laundry with, I hate this, I don't want to do it, I drag my feet, I drag, you know, and it's basically I'm doing it while gritting my teeth, right? It's a very different experience than if I connect to the why behind doing the laundry, which is caring for my family and these two little boys that I adore. And even being present with the, you know, the, when you are folding little baby clothes and you start to see how tiny they are and then they grow and now I'm folding, you know, baseball jerseys, that this won't always be the case, right? There's a level of impermanence to that. And it totally changes my relationship with doing laundry when I, when I make it a choice as opposed to something that I'm resisting, even though it's the very same task. So all of us have many daily things that we are engaging in. And when we open up to our full experience, and I would say open up to our values in combination with that, it frees you up because all of a sudden you relate to it differently, even if you don't even change what you're doing. I'm thinking about that at so many levels, because even if you don't change what you're doing, and even if you just sort of notice, huh, I'm really hating this, um, or I'm feeling resentful or whatever the thoughts are, I'm bored that come up and just noticing them um, and still doing the laundry and then deciding, you know, yeah, with my value system is, do I still want to keep doing it? Or oh, maybe there's, there's another way the laundry could get done. Um, you know, another step to take once you notice that, or even from a metaphysical standpoint to think you just like hating, hating the laundry every time you do it, you know, you're telling the universe, you know, send me more tasks I hate. Um, because, you know, I, I'm up for spending a lot of time doing things I don't like. So just on, on every level, the, the awareness of it and the opening space for it creates so many um, freedoms in, in your choice to still do it, that, that, do it or do it that way or, or change it in some way. And that's, I think there's an important distinction there around in no way is ACT suggesting or in no way am I suggesting to stay in situations that are unhealthy for you. Like we don't just open up and allow, you know, abusive relationship or, a, you know, someone that's emotionally abusive or a work situation that is um, unhealthy for us. That's not, that's not what I'm, I'm alluding to, but it's more about being able to dig deep to looking at unhealthy avoidance strategies, how they're keeping us stuck. And, and when we actually bring more awareness to the present moment, we can make more conscious decisions for ourselves based on our values. And sometimes that may be, I'm, you know, I'm overwhelmed. I will say it's, it's the case in our house that the laundry makes it to the dryer and then it doesn't actually make it to the drawers. We're just pulling the clothes out of the dryer some, <laughs> some days. That can be the case. And that for me is doing the laundry, right? Like not everyone has to have socks together. and Oh yeah. It. When they're older, they'll just be pulling it out of the dirty hamper. <laughs> yeah. Well, that happens too, I'm sure. And now they're doing the laundry, actually. That's how, that's how we solve some of this problem. But, but it's um, problem solving is a lot more effective when you can see the problem clearly. And sometimes problem solving is not the solution. Sometimes acceptance is the solution. Sometimes problem solving is the solution. But yeah, you want so, to know what it's you're so with. important. It's so important in the idea, and it's so subtle the idea that um, 
by opening, you can then choose, right? You can then choose, do I want to keep doing it for these reasons or do I want to problem solve? And that it's not, you know, by accepting the situation as it is, doesn't mean you're accepting it going forward. And I think that gets so tricky for people. And it's the same issue in forgiveness, right? In, in saying when we can forgive someone, really it is us letting go and accepting what has happened. It doesn't mean that we're going to continue to allow that behavior. Yes. There's a difference between acceptance and approval, a very big difference. And even in thinking about, you know, taking action against racism or against oppression, there needs to be some degree of acceptance there before you take action. Like this is happening, right? It doesn't mean I approve of it. Actually, I don't approve of it. That's why I'm taking action, right? So it sometimes that word acceptance really trips people up. And so I'll use other words like willingness or curiosity or openness instead of acceptance because yeah, acceptance gets so wrapped up in this idea of like I'm approving of something. I love the idea of curiosity. Yeah. You know, this gentle, open curiosity. It's so good. Um, in week five, uh, the focus is humans yearn for connection and belonging and our conceptualized self stories prevent us from learning, experience intimacy and seeing our part in a greater whole. And I think this is so wonderful to bring in all the, the four weeks before that culminate in what really is for all humans such a basic need and that I think we're lacking so much in in our culture right now is this sense of connection and belonging and being a part of um, to be able to then experience intimacy to have this comfort in self to be able to then relate to others from an open space rather from a place where there's barriers and blocks so that then we can feel we're, we're part of this greater whole and and where then maybe life uh, being in the world feels more safe and secure and makes more sense. One of my favorite quotes from that chapter was, you might be surprised by what you can do when you look beyond what you believe to be true about yourself. So again, we're coming back to the, the narratives. How are they maybe keeping us from a sense of connection and belonging? Yeah, I think we use also a term of being boxed in, right, by self-stories and seeing our self-stories really make us feel separate when we're locked into these beliefs of I am this and you are that, right? As opposed to feeling more interconnected. And actually, in one of the places that I learn about interconnection a lot is in our home, we're bee guardians. We have beehives, we have a little homestead here. And bees are fascinating in that when you when you take care of bees and you observe them, there's a whole set of bees that are involved in going and getting pollen. But then there's another group of bees that are involved in uh, protecting and guarding the front door to their home. And then there's another set of bees that are just the nursery bees. They just take care of babies. It doesn't matter if it's their babies. None of them are actually really their babies. They're all the queens, right? And at the same time, they're all completely dependent upon each other. Like you can't, they wouldn't function without each other. And actually when you name a hive, when you're a bee guardian and you name a hive, you give it a singular name. So we have Norman as one of our hives, even though there's 50,000 species in it. And a lot of times when we're caught in self story, we don't see that about ourselves too. 
I actually listened to one of your podcasts, Ellie, and it was, I think it was, you're speaking with someone about nutrition and you were talking about ecosystems and nutrition. And I was like, oh yes, <laughs> I'm on, so on the same page about ecosystems because we have the ecosystem of our body, right? But then we have the ecosystem of our family. And then we have the ecosystem of us as part of a greater whole of our community. And gosh, haven't we learned about ecosystems in terms of pandemic and how we're all interrelated and interdependent and, and affect one another. And in some ways that can be a great relief because we don't have to hold everything up on our own, as well as we also have a common shared vulnerability that if you use the word intimacy, and that intimacy is, is really about shared vulnerabilities and shared, and shared values. And that's what Steve Hayes would say, is intimacy equals shared vulnerabilities plus shared values. It takes dropping our self story or seeing ourselves as separate in order to step into that. I just have this flash in my mind. My son was showing me these um, photos this morning of in chemistry. He is was DDT, like they were somehow assigned different things and he was DDT. So he's showing me these pictures of these trucks that were just blasting DDT at beaches. You know, people are there in their swimsuits and just blasting them with these huge clouds of DDT. And that, you know, it, it was to eradicate the mosquito at that time. Um, and the idea that I think they came to mind because just the idea that we all are part of the same world. That is so critical, that sense. And you talk about, I think, when you bring the camera way, way, way out, you know, you zoom, zoom way out um, to get a sense of that, that we are part of this, this bigger world. And maybe we can end with what in a way is aligned with that, but also a, a juxtaposition and it's week six. And it is, um, what, it, what does it mean for you to have a meaningful life? And we get so many external uh, messages on what is a meaningful life? What is a good life? And I just thought it was so wonderful that you focus in the ACT Journal um, to the individual for them to determine what for them is meaningful and then to create a life around that. Yeah, that values are personal and really and chosen by you. It's sort of like if your favorite color is blue and mine is green, blue isn't better than green. It's just what <laughs> what's right for me, right? And so that as a therapist, that's one of the most important things that I've learned over time is that the person sitting across from me doesn't have the necessarily the things that make a meaningful life for them isn't necessarily the same for me. And that our job together is to discover that for them and for me to be a highlighter. Like whenever I see them light up with a sense of vitality, ooh, we've tapped into something there that is meaningful to you. Or when I see them tear up with a sense of longing or sadness, we've tapped into something that's meaningful to you. And in doing that, you can start to, it's like this never ending exploration. It's like, you know, trying to solve a, a Rubik's cube. We're not actually trying to get to the end of solving a Rubik's cube, because if you solve it, then it just sits on your shelf. <laughs> the fun part is in the figuring out, you know, in the exploring the different parts of you and, and what, what brings you vitality, what is meaningful to you. And yes, that is personal and chosen. And that brings me back to just what we were talking about at the beginning when you mentioned school and, and the idea you're, we're all hoping it's changing for the better in that sense. But 
definitely all of these messages telling us, you know, you have to raise your hand and get permission to go to the bathroom. So we can't trust our physical body that tells us we're hungry or we're tired or we need to go to the bathroom or we really like to go outside and run around. We are told the things we want, maybe because they're not um, accessible in that environment, or it makes our parents or, or any adult uncomfortable for us asking for that, that instead of just saying, no, you know, we can't do that now for whatever reason, it's like, we're wrong for wanting that. Why do you want that? You shouldn't want that. That's a terrible thing to want. Um, that that inner uh, voice so often gets closed down. It's so quiet that we can barely hear it, or it gets replaced with this external messaging. What is a practice to start being able to hear that on our own? In, in therapy, it's so wonderful to have someone that can recognize that for you and be like, ah, that, that, that's something you care about. Um, what's part of the practice in the ACT journaling that allows us to start recognizing in ourselves? I think it's a tuning in practice it's it's tuning in throughout your day and and all of the other processes that we've been talking about help with that because when we're not spending our time fixing or getting rid of feelings we can start to tune into them and and see if those feelings are pointing us in a direction right of of hmm what is it that's right for me right now there's actually a, a shell silverstein poem that i love that is sort of no teacher preacher or friend can tell you what's right or wrong, right? It's, it's inside of you. And so doing that throughout your day, embodiment check-ins, am I in my head or am I in my body right now? Opening up and, and experiencing our emotions fully and, and tapping into our heart. And then seeing that the things that are um, challenging in life are, are worthwhile in some, you know, worthwhile to, to pause on and pay attention to because they're challenging to you for a reason. So whether that's a difficult relationship or a work situation, usually when we're feeling challenged emotionally, it's because it's connected to our values. So there's many avenues into to your values. One may be what energizes you, what excites you, where do you feel like you're in a state of flow where time just goes away and you're fully engaged, so whether that's gardening or, um, you know, spending time with, with, your, with a friend in certain ways, or it's what brings you the most pain. And that can also be an avenue in. Yeah, that this is a place you care about, right? This is a place that, that matters to you. Mm -hmm. I, I love that part of the book. Um, and that I, I, I think the thing that I just love the most about the journal was the um, supportiveness of it and the sense of here's this practical guide that we can keep with us and work through it in eight weeks and then keep with us. And that it's going to bolster our confidence in the sense of that it's all, it's going to be okay. Like we can feel these things. We can allow them to be there with us and um, know that we're going to be safe and that it's going to work out and that we can trust ourselves. And I sort of get this image of like then floating in this radiant truth of who we are, right? That that is, that's a nice place to be. <laughs> not a, not a place to be, be um, running from. Absolutely. It's a beautiful place to be. Well, thank you so much. Uh, thank you and Debbie both for writing this. It is Act Daily Journal, Get Unstuck and Live Fully with Acceptance and Commitment Therapy. I was talking to a friend yesterday and I accidentally called it Acceptance and Compassion Therapy. And I thought, no, I think it's that too. Like It's, it's that too. And actually that too. that's why we spent a whole chapter on compassion. Yeah. Compassion is like the big umbrella 
over all of it, right? It, or as we say, it's the soil in which all of these skills can grow in, the yeah, nutrient-dense soil. Yeah. It's really important soil. Um, I'm speaking with Diana Hill, and she co-wrote this book with Debbie Sorensen. The book is out on May 1st, and if you pre-order, I actually have, through through my website, which is drdianahill.com slash book, I have a uh, free workshop on Act with Compassion, of all things, oh, that awesome. you'll be able to have access to, and, and also some journal prompts as well there. So if you go to drdianahill.com slash book, and then I also teach a lot through um, different programs inside LA, Mindful Heart programs online, as well as teach on, on Instagram. Oh, so wonderful. Well, thank you. Very thank much. you, Diana. Thank you so much. I can't wait to listen to your, your podcast every time when you had it listed in the book. I was like, oh, I had to listen to that one. Oh, yeah, I got to listen to that one. Yeah. <laughs>